0: launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everybody to Season 3, Episode 20 of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I think you're going to enjoy today's episode. I'm bringing back behind the microphone a guy you haven't heard from in a little while, Ryan Metzler, founder of Metzler Legal Strategies. There's a question I get all too often around the subject of associate equity, and that is, how do I maintain control of the business i built when I bring in minority partners? Arguably, there's nobody better than Ryan to dig into some of the legal constructs around this. This is gonna be a fast-paced, free-flowing conversation, and I know you're gonna get a lot out of it. Probably wanna get a pad and pen ready through another wonderful cup of that Mila coffee. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Welcome, everybody, once again to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am your host, Perrin Desports. As I teased in the introduction, I'm joined by an old friend of the family, so to speak, Ryan Metzler, founder of Metzler Legal Strategies. Ryan, welcome back to the show. It's been a while.
1: Well, thank you, Perrin. It is a privilege to be back.
0: It's good to have you. You're a a wealth of information. Um, When I started in this, this this world, I knew nothing about legal structures or, or much else about legalese. And you have been, done a great job educating me, De Walker, and frankly, a lot of our clients, especially around uh, components of the associate equity uh, aspect of building a business. We're not going to go into restricted stock units, profits, in- interest units, capital interests, minority buy-ins, and all that kind of stuff today. Um, but uh, there's a question that I get almost every time from uh, a prospective client call a- around the associate e- equity topic or when I host uh, people for discovery days and we start talking about associates and pathways to partnership and all that kind of fun stuff. And the question, the thought process really comes back to this aspect of maintaining control. Most of these groups uh, are are solo founder driven. Uh, and, and the founder that bought or built the initial practice or has bought or built subsequent practices in the group um, is is really one who's been the king or queen of the kingdom. Uh, everything they've wanted to do, anytime they wanted to do it, they never had to call a meeting with themselves. They never had to have a documented board meeting minutes to say what decision they made. If they want to change supply companies, they can do that anytime they want. If they want to take on a million dollar loan to buy another practice, they can do that anytime they want. So literally, it's their business to own, operate, and control outright. And a lot of them have the mindset that, you know, when I start bringing in associates into the ownership structure, am I going to have to? Are we going to take a vote for everything? And and the short answer to that is obviously no. But I want us to dig in today. And I'm sorry for the long winded tee up to this, but I want you and everybody else to understand the thought process of of the subject matter that I usually get on these questions. Let's talk a little bit, let's start out talking a little bit around the context of ownership. And when we talk about voting, there are other rights and privileges of ownership in a business. Do you want to take that first one and kind of dive deep into those different rights and privileges, Ryan?
1: Absolutely. And I I think you're 100% correct when you approach employee equity that the first question you get is, what am I giving away? And I think that's when, especially from the consultant and from the lawyer, it's, well, what are the goals of our program, right? Uh, are we are we trying to motivate increased performance, right? Are we trying to lock up our talent? And how do we do that where it gives them a big enough carrot to stick around while minimizing right the dilutive impact to my ownership? okay? And so I think the the first question we get is, do we do I have to give up voting equity? Right, or alternatively, can we structure some sort of economic right, whether that be a incentive compensation bonus, whether that be just a non-voting ownership interest, or that be true voting equity? I think that's generally threshold number one uh, that that we talk about.
0: Yeah, so we talk about you know um, ownership uh, interest distributions and voting equity distributions and and voting, and um, the the founder go back and restate earlier has all of that <laughs> you right. know but it does not necessarily mean that minority partners have all of those you can structure in some situations different classes of shares or or different aspects of what the um the ownership component uh has a piece of and and does not have a piece of so you can you're at some degree of liberty to create what you want when it comes to control provisions. Let's talk voting a little bit more, though, too, because, um, you know, I think there, um, uh, you know, there's the aspect of, uh, I always call this corporate governance, uh, and we'll get into, you know, voting around majority supermajority and all the what all that stuff means. But let's talk about the practical application really in terms of taking a vote. You know, you can you, the founder is always going to be able to outvote somebody. But what does that mean if they if they yeah. vote against?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I, I I think one of the biggest fears you have to address is, hey, we don't want to create this bureaucratic monster, right, where it's going to just interfere with the day to day operations and how I run my business. And 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 so I think one of the main ways we deal with that is in the operating agreement right, through a board of managers or a board of directors, right, and what the rights are there. And then as as you suggest, what are the rights of majority and a supermajority, and God forbid, if we get into unanimous decisions. Uh, so I think the the first way we we address that is by, by delegating down to the board of managers, and the managers, of course, have the right to delegate to officers the day-to-day decisions of the company, right, the entering into contracts, right, how we handle employees, right, just making those basic clinical decisions that allow you to operate your business. We don't want to touch that uh, in in an equity scheme, but I, to address your question about voting, what I think is important about voting is when you when you have voting rights, you become an owner of a company, right? You get full access to all that information, even if you don't sit on the board of managers, right? The board of managers reports to the owners, um, and and when we talk about voting rights, taking a vote, when we do decide to elevate something to the vote of a board, right? If if that if those associates will sit on it, which is a little more rare, or a vote of all the members. Right, then, then they then they, they they do get a seat at the table, even if they don't have a right to block that decision. Uh, generally, in the context of these smaller organizations, votes are done electronically. Uh, they're, they're frequently done through written consents, right? That everybody can just kind of docu sign uh, and, and certain things like that. So I, I kind of hit on a couple topics there, but I think the two big important ones is we do not want to create like a bureaucratic instrument that in that, is some, that slows down our operations, but it is important to give owners access to all that information so they feel like they have a say in the process
0: yeah I, I think that's critically important because you know having frankly, a lot of these people have taken the risk, you know to start the businesses and they have the 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 genius to create a, a great business financially, operationally and other what clinically and otherwise um and and the concern is, as soon as I bring someone in, all of that goes away. And the fact of the matter is, it really doesn't. I mean, it's it not binary, right? I mean. It...
1: Yeah, a- absolutely right. And and kind of to, to stress more about what does voting mean? I think you and I are of both of aligned on this because we, when we deal with our similar clients, uh, we 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 are kind of, if, if you ask us our opinion and we we're to push you in a direction, I'm gonna push you towards voting equity because I think it, you get more of a buy-in from your associates or from the plan. I, I I get access to all the information. I'm part of the process. I may not have the ability to block you, right? But I've got a voice. and And I think when you're rolling out this program to your doctors, when you're in the room and you're selling the benefits, right? I want you as part of my long-term strategic plan, I personally think that has real value
0: i I agree one hundred percent. and And to hammer this point home, um, most of the associate equity, um opportunities we see are a founder who is or a founding team who are like mid mid to late career and the associates are earlier stage career and and probably millennial generation and we know that especially the younger dentists younger people in general want want to belong to something. They want to be part of something bigger than, than themselves. Having that seat at the table, having that voice, that participation goes a long way to their overall engagement level. So when you think about associate equity plans, just like you're recruiting an associate, it's, I hate to say, it's not all about you. It's, it's really how you cater to what their needs are and make sure you solve for some of that from a mindset standpoint. And I think this goes a long way to that effect.
1: And, and that's the biggest difference when we talk about the different ways to structure ownership, whether that just be incentive con- compensation as a contractual right for the employment agreement, when we talk about non-voting equity, which is an economic right to distributions, Versus voting equity, which is a say in the direction of the company, even if it's not an ability to prevent the direction of the company that the founder wants to take, that's right.
0: That's right. now you you touched on distributions there. Um, and maybe we can spend just a quick second on this because um <laughs> I, I think incorrectly, <laughs> a lot of a lot of associates view these opportunities to become a partner as, this windfall of excess cash that's going to be unlocked from uh, the the DSO vault and is going to flow to them um, upon the end of the next month right so we know that that's not necessarily the case uh, simply because distributions are, Pro rata, meaning according to the amount of ownership. If I own one percent, you own ninety nine, and you declare a hundred dollar distribution, you get ninety nine of those dollars, and I get one. So that's that's the first thing. But the second thing is when we talk about corporate governance specifically, I think this is an important point because a founder has, when they're the sole owner, has the liberty to pull whatever cash out of the business they want for their personal needs, and Beyond that, when you bring in minority partners and you have a salary or some type of compensation structure for you as the founder, now when you start to pull out excess cash, then that has to be pro rata, where where they're uh, eligible for distributions. Um, and one of the things that many founders don't think enough about. Is how they manage cash for the growth of the business. Are they recycling cash for growth purposes or are they stripping it all out for personal income purposes? And this is not a decision they've had to even think about up to this point because they had the liberty to to do whatever they wanted whenever they wanted. And I I think that's that's a mindset to get around. You I didn't mean to walk into that or walk over you on that, but you want to talk a little bit about those governance aspects too?
1: So, so stepping back, I, you're exactly right. When, when you're a sole owner, it's okay. Hey, I'm I'm above my five hundred thousand operation budget. I'm going to take a distribution of X dollars this month, and I just can because I've got right. I've got nobody else that that uh, that I owe that distribution to. It it does become more of you know formulaic once you once you have other owners because they, again they have the rights to the financials. When you take a distribution pro rata, done. They get their share. I would take a sidestep real quick on in terms of the wind. You made a point early on in your in your introduction there about a windfall of profits. I don't want to get too far into how we structure these equity programs, but a lot of the time it takes a significant period of time, unless you have a buy-in, right, of a larger percentage, which again, sometimes we do bring in strategic partners and that's a, that's a good avenue to go. But in terms of pure employee equity models, these equity awards have to be earned and they vest over a period of time, usually three to five years, right? And they start building on another. So your distribu- your right to distribution in year one, right, could be very, very de minimis, right? But it, the idea is you're selling them on the five, seven, 10-year plan of when these start stacking, and then the the amount of windfall that they actually are entitled to based on those earned awards. Uh, so so I, would, I would say that first. Second, I think you made a very good point about uh, you need the, the owners need to think a little bit harder about how they pay themselves. I am a proponent that I think when you're selling the plan that owners pay themselves for clinical services the same way they pay their associates. I think you get a lot of buy-in uh, and you even can show them, hey, this is my employment agreement with the organization. Of course, we have the right to amend that, but the idea is, hey, here's how I'm getting paid, right? My 30% of net collections, just like you, right? Here's my here's my guaranteed minimum, if if you have one, right? And I'm, and then I think you need to carve out uh, what is the percentage of my time that I am the you know the CEO, right? The president of the business. What if you want to call yourself a clinical director, right? And what's the fair market value on that? And and just remember, you've got, you're going to have to show, right? We're we're showing sunshine here. Uh, So it needs to be fair market value, right? You're not going to get a lot of buy-in from your doctors if if you're taking out a substantial amount of profit, right? Calling yourselves the CEO of a fairly small organization and paying yourself the same amount for clinical services. So I think there needs to be some strategic planning and sunshine with, hey, I'm paying myself the same for clinical services. This is what I'm paying myself as an officer, right? The the 40% of the time I'm spending, right, running the company. Everything else goes to distributions. and again, I'm gonna uh, you're gonna have the right to take those distributions, uh, you know, whether it be on a monthly, quarterly, annual basis, we, we can still have some discretion there. but again, it's all about visibility, right and 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 show you know and showing showing your your owners where the money goes.
0: Yeah, very, very well said. and i I'm gonna use a word that I absolutely uh hate using uh, in life and business and everything else, and that is fair. I I hate it. You can't define fair. What's fair for me is not fair for you and and vice versa. But, you know, you want in these types of considerations um, with very productive associates that are distinctly minority partners that that don't own a whole lot in terms of percentage, everything needs to appear above board. Uh, And I, I say appear Lightly, I mean, it needs to be above board. You have a multi-owner business now, and you need to you need to operate it as such, and not take excessive liberties with the business the way maybe you have up to this point.
1: And parent, when I get this question from clients a lot, is well, what what should I pay myself, right? As a as a you know whatever you want to call it, a management fee or an officer fee, right? A clinical director fee. And, and even if you haven't made an S election, I don't want to get too far into tax issues, right? When you talk to your CPA and you say, well, what is the fair market value, right? Of what should I be paying myself that's subject to employment tax? That to me is a very good baseline rule uh, of like the minimum threshold, right? Of, yeah. of of what's fair. And so that's what I like to say is, well, you know, what 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 is the fair market value for the services you're providing plus the clinical? Okay, that's the carve out. And we're not going to take any more advantage of that. Same concept goes, for instance, if you have, uh, you know, related party contracts. I'm not trying to get too technical, but a lot of our a lot of our audience, a lot of our doctors own their own buildings, right? And when they're the sole owner, right, sole practitioner, maybe they just have a you know a handshake lease agreement where they're funneling rent payment. But well, once you have other owners, right, what is the what is true fair market? What you know what's tr- what is the true rent you know look like? In, you know in your region, and and it should be pretty close to that, right? And not and not using that to take advantage of our other owners.
0: Yeah, re- really good point. And uh, for the audience that's following along with this, um, uh, you know these are. Conversations. These are um, they're very thought-provoking. There's not a there's not an absolute right way and wrong way on most of this. And this is a lot of what Ryan and I get into um, with our clients, where we're working with the client and Ryan uh, to to come up with the right. Uh, solution for the business they're trying to build. you know and and these are things that like I say, most founder driven businesses have never had to consider before, but you'd rather do that before you roll out the program to your associate and you'd rather draft everything according to what your primary um, uh, you know modus operandi is versus having to debate it with a a, minor, a minority partner down the road um let's we we touched on voting um and i'd like to kind of come back to this Uh, because again, the thought process from too many people is, oh gosh, am I going to have to take a vote from everybody if I want to change toilet paper? You know, and and the obvious answer to that is no. I mean, can you, uh, I I want you to lead us through like this managing member or managing partner versus simple majority versus super majority versus unanimous conversation. And maybe how we, what, what it means when we say the thresholds that require these.
1: Absolutely, and and this is a conversation we have when we when we implement a new operating agreement, right, for our organization. Once we roll out an employee equity program, that we have every single time, and it's really three buckets of control. Okay, the first bucket is our board of managers, board of directors, right, which and and usually we do not uh, offer seats on our board, right, to associates. Uh, A lot of times, and when we say board, don't don't think you're gonna have to go and have like a five person board, right? We put these board structures in place if you elect to maybe bring in a strategic partnership or two, right? Maybe somebody comes in and buys 20% of your practice, right? And participates in your employee equity program. Well, maybe as part of that, merger right or that, that them coming in you do give a seat up in your board uh, a lot of, i'd say it's very frequent for a lot of our clients to be the sole manager or sole director uh on the board okay and that's bucket 1 what we like to think of that is operational control, day-to-day activities that you will not need to take a vote on, okay? Because then the board's going to have the discretion to delegate, right, duties to officers of the company, like entering into contracts, making, you know, whatever that is, right? You know, signing a vendor contract, hiring hiring a new dental assistant, right? Uh, making marketing decisions, all, all of those day-to-day decisions that you're not going to have to take a vote on. Uh, so that that's bucket one. Bucket two is majority, and I think it's when, whenever we forecast dilution, and this is this is a little more in Polaris's uh, you know models uh, th- than my own. Uh, but uh, th- this is when we want to say, hey, no matter what, we, we sort of a merger, right, or sort of some sort of growth opportunity, we never want to give up majority control, fifty-one percent, right? And and I think that's a reasonable expectation from our associates. So when we take a vote, right, no matter what, everything in our majority bucket. I'm always going to have the discretion for ultimate authority. And, and item number one that I see parent and majorities is like when to take a distribution, right? It's not, it's not, it's always pro rata, but it's the timing on, okay, I'm looking at my capital reserve. I set this across for strategic growth. Uh, th- this is what's in the budget. I'm now ready to take a uh, to take a distribution. It is rare that in our operating agreements, we build in Right, the, the the company shall make quarterly distributions. Right, we like to give a little more flexibility than that. Right, so it, it, that's usually a majority decision. The last bucket is a supermajority, and really, what we're trying to accomplish here is this is where we want to give to our associates at least the uh, uh, I don't I hate using the word illusion because we're not trying to be disrespectful, but it takes a while to get to supermajority threshold. Generally, it's between sixty five and eighty percent of the voting units. So let's just slow that down. I realize I'm talking in legal jargon here. But what that means is let's say our we have a supermajority threshold of 75%. That means when we have other owners, right, who own 25% or more, or more than 25%, they can technically block a decision, right, of the of the founding member but to be clear, all those individuals would have to vote together against you. So practically, are we giving up our decision to make those really big decisions? And that's what's, that's what's in the supermajority bucket, You know, entering into a change of control transaction. That is a supermajority decision. So what we want to show with that bucket is these are the very big decisions. A lot of times opening another practice, right? That we want to give you a say on, even if practically you can't block it. So to step back, I, get, I used a lot of words in probably too many minutes. We've got our board day-to-day, right? We've got our supermajority threshold, which the owner is always going to maintain, which is going to be a bunch of rights, right? When to settle a lawsuit, stuff like that, right? When to take a distribution. And then you've got your supermajority, which are your really big actions with respect to the practice.
0: Excellent. That's that's incredibly well said, uh, succinct and and to the point, and hopefully um, gives gives the audience an understanding of those three buckets, but also the the kind of uh, what's contained in those three buckets. You know, what are what are the things that can be decided or need to be a vote uh, before we can uh, we can make a decision on it? That's, and,
1: that's if I can just make one more point. Mm-hmm. I, I made this. I made the reference of illusion to control. I, I don't want to be saying we're being underhanded, but this is where it's important. Just because an associate doesn't have the ability to block a vote doesn't mean it's not important for them to have a vote right and that's that the idea of, of hey again if i'm an important strategic partner right and i'm i'm doing a million five for you as an oral surgeon associate right i may i may only have a 1 or 2% ownership interest in the business but you're going to listen to me when i go to have a vote Right. And and that and that voting equity gives me access to the information and it gives me the ability to write, provide my perspective. So just because somebody doesn't have the ownership to block a decision, that doesn't mean politically that you're not going to want to listen to them as a founder in order to retain your talent.
0: Yeah, I, this is a super, uh, a, a super point, because I think um, if left unaddressed or, or um, you know, there, there are too many people that might be listening, say, OK, I'm the founder of the business. It's it's my way or the highway right now. I'm going to bring in minority partners and I'm going to have 10 of them each that own 1%. They're never going to be able to vote me. It's still my way or the highway, you know, but I'm going to lock them up. Well, hold on, cowboy. You know, because right. when when that's the case and and you and for the things that do require a vote, you take a vote and if you have 10 highly productive associates, they can't outvote you but they're all they're all super producers they collect a lot and they're instrumental in the future in the current and future success of the business to have a kangaroo court and to to run roughshod over them without any consideration to why they're voting against what you want is a bigger problem than what the way the vote plays out i would say Exactly right Yeah um now The antithesis to that is this, I think you touched on the word unanimous, uh, unanimous vote. Um, And I'll go ahead and tee this up and and let you kind of play it out here. But what usually happen or the theory behind a unanimous, something that requires a unanimous vote starts out early on, typically in uh, partnerships or yeah. or a couple of founders maybe and the thought process is hey we're we're all going to go in and build this business together and we're we're all in it you know uh, we're going to die together if we don't if, if we don't make it you know if we're not successful and when we get to some point down the road you know what, if one of us doesn't want to sell the business, then we're not going to force that person to sell it. We're going to create a unanimous uh, provision in the operating agreement that the vote to sell the business would require 100% uh, approval of, of the um, of the opportunity or else we're not going to do it. That sounds really good in theory. How does that typically play out, Ryan? You want to give us uh, the the downside yeah. to this?
1: Because because we don't have video, you nobody could see me aggressively shaking my head as Perrin was talking. This is a flashing red light. No, 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 don't do that. And I want to be clear what what Perrin was talking about is incredibly common with you know, two, three, right, four partners to start up and say, Hey, we're gonna be aligned on these big decisions, right? When we expand, when we hire a new associate. And there was a real practical way to do that, exactly what we just talked about with. Both the supermajority, right? Right. Which we, which we can set at a little bit of a higher threshold, right? Maybe even 80% level uh, to get initial buy in. And we can also delegate like spheres of influence through employment agreements or, you know, and whatnot to individuals to give them their own autonomy. But to be clear, making something unanimous is going to hamstring your ability when you go to roll out an employee equity program, right? You have one stick in the mud, so to speak. One minority owner can prevent. A very uh, you know, either profitable or uh, you know, a very intelligent growth strategy uh with, with your with your company. So I, I get this all the time. I, I'm not gonna say I haven't agreed to put it in a couple of operating agreements over my career, uh, but the, the client is always gonna get a talking to and some horror stories for me about you know minority, minority shareholder, minority member lawsuits and and preventing action and blocking and blocking major strategic acquisitions and costing everybody a lot of money.
0: Yeah. If... If anybody wants to uh, uh, really cut to the chase on unanimous uh, vote requirements, um, you can think of it as what we call a poison pill in the operating agreement, and that'll lead you to the conclusion that Ryan and I are talking about. Avoid unanimous at at all costs. Um, So let's, uh, and usually, or at least where we have seen that create um, the greatest (laughs) angst and problems and and fights, honestly, heated debates and everything else is typically around the sale of a business. Because like you say, you have a one percent shareholder that doesn't want to go along because there's not that great an economic interest of theirs on the on the buyout. And then the uh, they're holding up the sale for the other ninety nine percent of the owners of the business. And typically they can be bought off for their vote. But that's probably another podcast we'll record down the road. Um, let's talk a second. About employment agreements and operating agreements as it relates to selling the business, because this is different. Um, and if we want to talk about post-sale work commitments and whatnot, we can do that too. But um, do you want to do you want to maybe talk about the difference? And I think far too often people misconstrue that oh, the employment agreement and the operating agreement are the same thing, right? And and they're not. They're
1: not at all. Uh, so obviously the, there's really three major pieces when we rule out employee equity programs. We've got the operating agreement slash shareholder agreement, right? What are the rights of, of the owners? And these are usually the Bibles of if drafted right, go through what happens if situations, right? We already talked about control rights. Um, we we could talk about transfer restrictions, how we value the company, right? Upon, upon an exit, uh, drag along and tag along rights. We could do a whole podcast on just what's in operating agreements, right? But those are the, every right, that I have as a member or shareholder of the company belongs in the operating agreement. Okay. In employment agreements, my contractual right to, to receive right revenue in exchange for services. Okay. And it's a, a, obviously it's important that we have both lined up. The employment agreement is also going to build out or align the incentives of your employee equity program. So the operating agreement is what are my rights uh, when I'm a member, the employment agreement shows you your pathway goals right what are the usually again we can we can spend a whole podcast on on, on, on developing these employee equity programs that i know you have but what what are the goals of my program uh, is it subjective are they just pure you know revenue driven that's all going to be laid out in addition to very common things such as what is my compensation uh restricted covenants non-competes non-solicits confidentiality provisions uh maybe some language around ownership of intellectual property and then, obviously, term and termination. So, the just to step back, employment agreements are my rights as a as a service provider. If operating agreements are my rights as an owner of the
0: company. Got it. Really, uh, really well done. And I think that creates um, uh, a natural transition into a topic that is top of mind for. Probably every employer on the face of or uh, in in the United States right now, I was going to say on the face of the planet, that's probably not accurate. So the FTC, Federal Trade Commission, um, about two months ago, maybe uh, or thereabouts, uh, came down with a ruling about um, restrictive covenants, non-competes, non-solicits um, and and their viability going forward this is a hu- this is stirring the pot pretty uh vigorously right now um because uh, non-compete none of us want to bring somebody into a business um make them an owner, a partner in the business, uh, avail them of company secrets, our secret sauce and how we do things, and then basically have to compete with them the next day if they set up shop right across the street. So do you want to take a pass at um, what the FTC is currently proposing, um, any general thoughts around it? And then let's talk about the difference in um, employees versus owners and, and how actually having people as uh, have, having minority partners in a business might actually help our founders as it relates to um, keeping the business glued together moving forward.
1: Absolutely, I'm actually going to flip that first. so We have an understanding okay, about yeah. <laughs> with employees because that's because I, I think we've got some clarity on the ruling with respect to employees, and then we need to talk about rights as owners. Okay. So, just at a ten thousand foot level, right? We we uh, we as lawyers, writers, service providers, will put restrictive covenants both in the employment agreement and in the operating agreement. Okay, rule one on one on that is rule one on one is they're going to be more enforceable in, in the context of being an owner of the company, and why that is is. Uh, you you have different interests as an owner of a company versus an employee, right? You have a fiduciary interest, right, in the performance of the company, the, the well-being. Uh, you have an interest in protecting confidential information and not soliciting other employees. That is good for you as an owner if everybody abides by those same restrictions, okay? Uh, in, restricted covenants and employment agreements, while enforceable in most states, and we'll talk about that briefly, uh, tend to be a little more limited in scope uh, because, while we have an interest in, we absolutely have an interest in protecting our confidential information, our secret sauce. We have an interest in prohibiting the solicitation of patients, right, and, and other doctors. We have a limited interest in partitioning direct competition, okay? But individual employees also have, uh, you know, the right to go out and earn a higher wage, right, to go out and provide services in the community. And especially in, in our industry, right, with dentists, there's a, there is a, a real ethical concern, right, that we do not limit the ability of patients to get the best treatment in their community. So there's this dueling interest, especially with employment agreements, is you know h- how aggressive are we with them? What's reasonable in light of the circumstances? So d- when we go to structure these, we are generally more restrictive and always include them in our operating agreement. So as an example, the state of California does not allow non-competes. That doesn't mean that we do not have a non-competition provision in our operating agreement once they're an owner of the company or connection with the sale of the company. Ah, uh, most other states, right? Our clients will have non-competes and non-solicit, but generally they're less restricted. So, just giving a, a quick example, uh, you know, maybe we have a one-year uh, non-compete within a geographic. Let's pick a let's let's use your home area there, uh, parent. Let's let's say Charlotte. Well, we may look at a geographic restriction depending on whether you're sub- you know how suburban you are in Charlotte of maybe three to four of maybe five miles if you're outside the loop. Okay, and we're gonna look at we're gonna look and make sure that is an enforceable. Uh, covenant that protects our business but doesn't unreasonably restrict future employment. In the in, and maybe we make that within one practice. To be clear, so we're drawing one circle in the operating agreement. Right, we're going to say, "Well, you're an owner of the company now. It's reasonable now to maybe make that two years. Maybe we keep it at one. Maybe, but then maybe we flex the restricted territory to three to five miles of every one of our practice locations in the region. So we're going to try. We're again, we always want to be reasonable in both territory, right, geographic restriction, and time length." But we we can be more aggressive in our operating agreements. So that was a lot of words. Have so I teed that up? Okay, then we can move and talk about what the FTC ruling is 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 going to say.
0: Yeah, I think you did a really nice job of that. And and I think um, the the point for the audience uh, is that um, uh, non restrictive covenants, non competes, and the like are different for employees versus owners that's the that's the real key takeaway here and i think where you're probably segueing next with this is how we think about that in the context of some of the ftc stuff so i'll i'll Absolutely. I'll yield the the balance of my time to the <laughs> senator from <laughs> from Missouri, all right?
1: So th- this obviously I I think I've I've talked more to my clients about this issue than any other uh, I I said in my 15 career any other issue any other like change of landscape uh, because this goes to the foundational how we contract with our employees and what the ruling's going to be. So as parented up the FTC uh they've been working on it for about a year but in January released a ruling which says non-competes are going to be de facto unenforceable. Okay, and everybody needs to take a breath. Know that we're currently in what's known as the comment period with a regulatory agency that runs for 60 days. It actually expires here coming up, I think, in about a week. I think it's like March 23rd. Yeah, I uh, from everybody that I've spoken to, that comment I mean, don't hold me to it, but that comment period is going to be uh extended, uh, probably for a significant period of time this year just because of uh, it, the amount of uh, bodies, the amount of agencies, the amount right, the amount of uh, 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 institutions that have are, are submitting comments to this right and and what their impacts are going to be this is obviously not limited uh to to our to our dental industry okay so we are in the comment period okay uh and then after the comment period there's going to be a minimum of 180 days before the ruling comes down okay if there are no changes made which that is a big big if uh then we will have we we will need to revisit our employment agreements and remove the non-competition provision out of the employment agreement Okay. To be clear, this ruling does not affect confidentiality provisions, non solicitation of patients, non solicitation of vendors or suppliers, or non solicitation of employees. This is targeted about the, the restriction of competition and the ability of our doctors to go out and earn a living in the community. Okay. Now, uh, uh, I want to put a caveat on that, and that uh, clever lawyers or sloppy ones, however you want to see it, can use uh, and there's already been litigation on this in other states just not at a right at a at a federal level at an agency level can use uh, non non-competition provisions confidentiality provisions to be a de facto non-compete so we still need to take a a very um you know scalpel look at a restrictive covenant and say to make sure hey is all the wording in here or all the restrictions in here truly there to protect our specialized information, to protect our trade secrets, to protect our secret sauce, right? Is our non-solicit is our non reasonable in scope, right? And again, usually they should be. And if we do that right, we can those restricted covenants can still protect your business. And I believe you don't really need the non-compete in the employment agreement, ultimately. And that's, I think, where we're going to end up as a best practice, whether that be a year from now, right? Or, or whenever we have to make that change. I'm gonna take a breath there, Perrin, but let you talk before we talk about ownership and and, and restrictive covenants.
0: Yeah. So I, I think now that we've got um some level of prognostication, some level of likelihood, some level of um understanding around how these provisions uh, which of these provisions may be going away for employees and how they're going away, the, the rationale behind it. Um I think the key for the people listening to this podcast is they're 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 probably listening to the podcast uh, because they are entertaining the prospect of bringing in minority partners, be they associates, executives, or otherwise, into the business with either some type of a buy-in opportunity or an earn-in or a hybrid of both. But it's going to go from being a you know a founder-driven business to something with a lot of other owners at a at a minority level. So let's talk about ownership now and what that may look like because it could very you can you could make the case potentially that bringing in high performing associates into the business at minority levels secures the business for the long haul based around the perspective enforceability of these non uh non-compete provisions
1: uh, absolutely. So, uh, I, I think my counsel. Uh, no, I think my counsel currently to clients is wait and see. Let's not change our forms yet. Um, I, I do like to engage in a best practices conversation with respect to non competes and employment agreements. I will say the vast majority of, of of our dental clients, we do include them in the employment agreement. But I always ask the question, hey, would give me the context of when you'd ever actually enforce this. And usually the answer is, well, it's more of just a scare provision. I'm not actually ever going to litigate it, but I want it in there, right? To to maybe protect it or maybe prevent some actions. But I don't ultimately ever going to sue in it because I don't want, I don't want to spend the resources. I don't want the reputation in the community. I don't want it out there in front of our patients or clients. It gets messy. So ultimately, if you ask my opinion, I think we could be headed towards the direction of it, you know, it, this is just a guess, but in 18 months. Non competes maybe not being standard in our in our form of employment agreements and maybe that's not an awful thing assuming we can still adequately protect right our brand our marketing our client base right at, at, you know and our, our product that is different than when you become an owner of the company okay once you become an owner of the company I, I I'm a strong believer of, of of hey I even if I only own three percent of the business right. I have an aligned fiduciary interest of protecting, right, uh, of protecting, comp, you know, somebody from going and seeing inner workings of our business, having access to all the information we talked about with voting rights, and then going and finding out a way. Well, maybe there's a way to do it better next door, right? Well, uh, well, maybe not a great model uh, in terms of uh, the, the spread of practices. It's it's a very real concern. So, I think for the time being, I, I, I would strongly advise of keeping the non-competes in our operating agreements. And what the FTC ruling says on this currently is they do not apply to non-competes in a sale of business context. Well, you break that down as, well, what's the sale of a business versus what's the sale of an ownership interest? And right now, they they've deemed it as a, it applies to, somebody's gotta be a substantial owner. And this is a number that could very well change, but the ruling came out and set a 25% threshold. Well, now we're saying, wait a second. Well, none of our none of our associates own that much equity. Well, in the final ruling, maybe that could be five percent or three percent. We don't know, uh, and that's one I think is a little more vulnerable to change and whether we get an official rule on it. But it, it, at least we can have a non compete in there for substantial owners. So I, I would advise right now, right, we we keep having those non compete non and, and again non confidentiality always, but keep having those non competes because they're going to be much more likely to be enforceable than the ones in the employment agreements.
0: Yeah. And I think uh, a point you you hit on earlier was that, you know, this applies to not just the world of, of dentistry or group dentistry, but, you know, it's, it's everything we're dealing with here. So um, th- this is going to be a, an interesting debate um, to see unfold over the course of this year. Um, it, you know, and, and I really look, I think it goes without saying that you and I believe in the power of equity. You and I believe that it aligns interests. And we know that it solidifies highly productive associates for the long haul. Um, But if one of the ancillary benefits is that in some way, shape, manner or form, it also makes these, uh, uh, you know, provisions more enforceable, then then that's all the better, too. And,
1: And I would just say, take away. It's not meant to be. This is not meant to be a scare podcast. I'd say take a breath. The comment period is almost surely going to be, you know, hopefully this is released in the next eight days and I don't look like, like an idiot saying the comment period is going to be <laughs> extended. We expect the comment period to be extended, even then it's going to be 180 days minimally till it's required to be forced. And then no, they've already come out and said it's not going to be retroactive. You can't be penalized, right, for for having these. We just need to, okay, if the ruling does come the other way, well, it's a great time to, to reach out to your consultant, reach out to your attorney and say, hey, let's take a look at these, what's enforceable and what's not.
0: Good stuff. I'm pretty confident we'll have you back on the podcast before much longer to to dive deeper into this and to uh, certainly a lot of other areas that we touched upon um as it relates to both operating agreements, associate equity models and and a whole lot of other good stuff. ryan, you're you're a busy guy. It goes without saying and you're a wealth of knowledge. You. Are, are, are great in working with our clients because you really cut to the chase and give good guidance. And um, uh, I think that's what so many people, uh, including us, really appreciate about you. So I, I thank you for your time. Tell our audience real quick where they can find you contact information. We'll link to it in the show notes and all that kind of good stuff.
1: Well, absolutely. Well, as you, as you led in the foreman, I'm uh, we, we're four months into Metzger Legal Strategies, but it, it's going great. Uh, so you, you can just find me at MetroLegalStrategies dot Parent will put up an, an email address as, as well. Uh, but yeah, if, if there's any follow up uh, interest or, or questions with respect to employee equity programs, uh, I'm happy to spend the time to walk you through those.
0: I'm really good about forwarding emails, Ryan. So, and and I know uh, I know your address by heart. So, <laughs> um, we appreciate you being on the show today. You're a tour de force and a wealth of information. And we're better off for your time, and uh, I'm very grateful for that. I know our audiences as well. For those in the audience, y'all hang around, stick around for a few minutes. I'll be back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show. Thanks once again to Ryan Metzler of Metzler Legal Strategies. He is a... uh A wealth of information a great resource and we've worked with him uh for a number of years Uh, we work with a lot of class a attorneys and law firms across the u.s um, but he is certainly one and uh, is really really well versed uh in the uh, context of the associate equity solutions that we provide for clients one sort of concluding thought uh or, or comment um that i wanted to make relative to associate equity uh, and this has also come up a good bit recently, is that so many of you all who are in the audience and you know have followed me and DeWalker for a number of years and seen us speak or watched some of our presentations and all that kind of good stuff, we are really, I guess, recognized, whatever that means, um, uh, as or, or for our earned equity models. That's profits, interest, and restricted stock units. And... We believe highly in those models uh, on an earned equity context. They're great solutions in growing group practices and y'all all know that by now um, for those who've followed us for a while. That being said, um, that is not the only methodology we employ. Um, we do traditional buy-in structures um, at either a practice level or a DSO level uh, depending upon the situation. and. We don't talk about it that much, um, and maybe we should. And, and the reason I say that is because the, the earned equity models, profits, interest, and restricted stock are, are great in a lot of ways. They obviously don't burden the associate with any debt, uh, and it can be a tremendous upside uh, for them over the long haul. That being said, there are a lot of times that a traditional buy-in, structured buy-in approach can be the right thing, and it can be a more immediate solution, for lack of a better term. And the reason I bring this up is because, one, we just don't do a good enough job of marketing it um, to the marketplace to have you all understand that you know uh, there is a place for traditional buy-ins up to some level, uh, and you can do it in a hybrid means uh, on an earn-in and a buy-in component. Um, so that that can be, call it a hybrid structure, that's the best of both worlds. The other thing though, to keep in mind, relative to this uh, FTC ruling and, and the potential outcome, which is as of yet undefined, um, if you are looking for a way to, uh, more quickly secure your associates and you want to do a nominal buy-in for all of them whatever nominal is fifty thousand a hundred thousand whatever the number is whatever the number is relative to what the value of your practice uh, your business is and things like that those are structures we can absolutely um uh do and and you can piggyback an earned in model off the top of it if that's what you want. So I I didn't wanna take up time on the podcast part, the interview part with Ryan to go into this. And I'm trying not necessarily to shill for our services, but at the same time, I I think it's it's a solution to this potential um, quandary that the FTC is possibly gonna put many of us in. And I think relative to that, um, it's something for a lot of you to consider if you've only been thinking about things in isolation, meaning um, it's it's either an earn-in or nothing or a buy-in or nothing. It can be the best of both worlds. And if it's some something where you feel like you need to get a solution in place pretty quickly before this thing goes into effect in another four to six months, then the buy-in is probably the best way to accomplish that. So I want to take a couple of quick seconds and kind of dive deeper into that from what we're able to do here at Polaris and um, just let y'all know that uh, buy-ins are still viable. They, they could be the right solution depending on what you're trying to achieve. So appreciate Ryan joining me on the show today. I appreciate all of you being in the audience, uh, following us, listening, giving us the great reviews that you do and the nice compliments when I talk to you on the phone or, or see you in person. Obviously, we value your time Appreciate you being a listener and a subscriber, and we'll see you on the next episode.